Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and creature of the darkness like Spike, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm film scholar and neutered vampire who cheats at kitten poker, Noella Croy. <laughs> and we're here today to talk about Life Serial, the fifth episode of season six. Life Serial aired on October 23rd, 2001. It was written by David Fury and, of course, Jane Espenson, whose fingerprints are all over this thing. And it was directed by Nick Mark. If this is your first episode of Still Pretty, welcome. And this is your spoiler alert. We are a fully (laughs) spoiled Buffy podcast. We will talk about anything and everything over the entire course of all of the series, maybe, probably, at any time. So... (laughs) Consider yourself warned, fully spoiled podcast. Okay, it's in Latin, so don't laugh. It's supposed to sound like this. Let's go on patrol. In Life Serial, Buffy comes home from a hard night slaying with a bucket of fried chicken, only to find everyone finishing up a home-cooked dinner. As she tries to figure out her life plan, Tara suggests she come back to school and just audit some classes. And Buffy's like, yeah, fine, okay, just let me sit here and eat my symbolic food of depression, the fried chicken leg, in peace. Unfortunately, the trio have not let go of their shared delusion that they are of any real consequence at all in the evil order of things and are planning to take down Buffy before she ignores them so much she hurts their feelings. Because this time tomorrow the games begin and the Slayer will never even know what hit her. Buffy attends a sociology class with Willow and feels out of sync because she doesn't understand what's going on. Later, as she's waiting to go to a different class with Tara, Warren bumps into her and puts a piece of evil lint on her sweater that somehow makes time rush forward in fits and bursts. The trio watch from their van, patting themselves on their collective backs until Buffy figures it out and finds the lint. Warren hits the self-destruct button and the lint goes poof. And then the three of them assign Warren 220 points for his torment of Buffy. Beat that! Oh, I will. I will. Next, Buffy tries to work at Xander's construction site. She manages to get past the standard issue construction site sexism because she can lift a steel beam by herself without so much as a back brace. But then Andrew summons a bunch of demons on the site and Buffy gets to buffing and she slays them all. In the excitement, Andrew hits the Star Wars horn. And Buffy notices the black van, but she's distracted by Xander, who wants to know how he's going to explain the damage to the clients. He can't show them the bodies of the demons since they melted away, as did the memories of the guys whose lives she just saved. It's that time of the month, huh? Xander believes her, but immediately fires her anyway and sends her away. The next day, Buffy starts her new job, working at the Magic Box with Giles and Anya. This is going to be great. At the Magic Box, Jonathan tries his hand at the competition, cursing Buffy to be stuck in a time loop until she satisfies a customer with a task that resists solving. While stuck in the loop, Giles and Anya and the other customers don't seem to be aware of what's happening, and Buffy is left to Groundhog Day her way through this alone, eventually solving the case of the cranky mummy hand and ending the loop. But she forgets to charge the customer for the shipping costs. Yeah, I'll just take it out of your pay. Buffy quits her job, then goes to Spike's crypt to get shit-faced and tells him her stories of woe while downing shots. <laughs> he tries to tell her who she is. You're not a school girl. You're not a shop girl. You're a creature of the darkness, like me. And she doesn't buy it, but she goes along with him to a demon bar to get information. She thinks they're going to beat up demons for information, but Spike wants to play poker for kittens, which is stupid currency. 
Buffy dumps the basket of kittens and leaves, and Spike rushes out after her. What's wrong, love? What's wrong? You are going to help me. You, you are going to beat heads and, and, and fix my life. Buffy goes outside and stops short when she sees the nerd mobile and recognizes it from the construction site. She moves toward it and out pops a demon. Well, Jonathan all glamored up to look like a demon. And he takes credit for tormenting her over the last few days. Drunk Buffy kicks him in the gut and falls down. And Jonathan throws a smoke bomb and runs away. I call on the misty portal to my demon dimension where I'll lay my head and gently die. At home the next day, Giles comforts Buffy both with words and a big check. Which is not a favor. Which is money owed to the girl who never collected a dime but got you two years of retroactive pay when WatcherCon came to town, but whatever. Anyway, Buffy is generously grateful at what is apparently being seen as generosity and not, you know, fiduciary justice, but still he manages to look uncomfortable at her response. I just want to tell you that, um, this makes me feel safe knowing you're always going to be here. (laughs) Holy shit. Say it again. Fiduciary justice. Fiduciary justice. <laughs> it's so close. Fiduciary. It. It's fiduciary. almost as much fun to say as corporate malfeasance. It is. A fiduciary malfeasance. justice. I yeah. like. I like fiduciary oh justice. All right. So, Noel. <laughs> Life cereal. Here we are, mid season six, which is known as the, you know, season of Buffy. Although, actually, I really like it a lot, but it is. So difficult, and we're going to be wrestling with a lot of that difficulty while we talk about Life Serial. But overall, I'm curious, even though I already know the answer to this, but I'm curious. <laughs> what did you think? How do you feel about Life Serial? For the record, how do you feel about this? Right? For, on the record, this okay. is going down in the books. Yes. So my very first note, when I started writing my notes for this episode, I just wrote... What the actual fuck? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. There's okay. I mean, mm-hmm. there are a lot of things that I like in this episode. There are a lot of there are a lot of great lines in this yeah. episode. Yes. But oh my god, mm-hmm. the metaphorical bullshit of these dudes <laughs> messing with Buffy. I oh, yeah. I can't. Yeah. I can't. Mm-hmm. I hate it so much. I hate, I hate it so much. Okay, ask me, ask me how I feel about Life Serial. <laughs> yes, you, <laughs> you with microphone. How do you feel, Lonnie, about Life Serial? Oh my God, I love it so much. <laughs> going to be great. It's going to be this great. This episode delights me in so many ways, while at the same time I understand completely why you hate it and support your perspective on that because you're right i just happen to love it (laughs) i just happen to enjoy this episode so much the thing is i want to love it like i want Mm -hmm. to because i love i fucking love a groundhog day style time loop so much i love it so much Mm -hmm. but i just i get caught up in this episode in what the actual fuck is happening because the guys are watching like they're watching warren's evil lint do its thing from the van Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They're like, it's doing it. It's wicked cool. But what are they actually watching? And yeah. similarly with the time loop in the magic shop, they're watching from the van. But what the fuck are they actually <sighs> seeing? It just, well, it pull. I don't know. I love... I love this idea of, like, messing Uh with the time and, like, Buffy's sense of reality because, of course, you know, like, metaphorically, that's what she's going through. And I'm here Mm -hmm. for, like, the demon as, you know, a metaphor for Buffy's experience. But this is not our usual demon as metaphor. It's literally three dudes in a van with technology. It's literally three misogynists in a van, which is like five cats in a trench coat, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Uh, but <laughs> three misogynists in a van. That are, you know, so it's actually not metaphor. I mean, that's one of the things about season six is that we're we're leaving our metaphorical demon state, right? And we're moving into this is actual reality we are recognizing the actual nastiness that exists within humans and i think that may be part of the reason there are a lot of reasons that i can understand why people who hate season six hate season six um i actually really like it and the more i watch it the more i like it i hated it like everybody else in the beginning but the more i engage with it the more i actually enjoy the things that are happening within season six and the questions that they raise at the same time Um, as a woman suffering from like real experiential and generational trauma at the hands of men, um, like this, you know, men like this, um, it, it's really difficult to watch. It's difficult to interact with. Here we are having an entire episode that is nothing but these weaselly little nothings, right? These weak, dumb white men that somehow managed to fail upward, ruining things for everybody else, and watching that happen in 2020, you know what? It's a bit much. It's a bit much, I'm not going to lie. So um, I get it. Like when, when a lot of this stuff can be really, really hard to watch. At the same time, like I, I love the whole, like everything is funny. Jane Espenson can delight me pretty much all the time and there is so much espensonian like wonderful you know let me throw down to the misty portals where i will lay down and gently die you know <laughs> yep there's just so yep. much the the repetitive this is going to be great like that is so fun um you know the neutered vampire who cheats at kitten poker like there's so much really fun stuff going on here and we see you know, these almost like short stories as Buffy moves through her day, right? That we're in these like individual stories that kind of all come together, you know, into this bigger story at the end. Um, I love it. I love it. I think it's just so much fun. But like, I get why it's difficult to engage with. And also, let's talk a little bit about the time loopy thing. Um, I kind of put this into the script for the uh, summary that we went through of the total what the fuck of the time loop. Like here we have where Buffy is the evil lint on her, right? And so she is experiencing time in this really weird way. But she is like, she's, and I'm like, okay, maybe she's just blacking out during those times, but she's actually continuing to behave as though she's Buffy. Right. Uh, but she's not because one of them, she's at the water fountain and then she gets up from, so she's at the water fountain with the water fountain just running over her face for 20 minutes, 
while Tara just stands there and notices nothing weird. Right. Um, like yeah. all of it is just weird. And like Buffy must have been there when Tara went into class, but Buffy's gone for the whole class. So Buffy didn't go into class with her. Tara didn't grab Buffy and bring her in with her and notice that she's in a catatonic state or whatever. Like what was the external experience of that and also one of the things you brought up they're watching her but they're watching her from an external so they're just watching her stand there frozen yeah like what are they actually seeing that is she frozen is she you know and honestly like i don't if we were if we were so deep in buffy's pov or if this were Mm -hmm. somehow magical in a more overt way that's another thing i take issue with it's both it's Warren's Warren's little trick that he plays on yeah. her is like it's done with technology apparently, but it's very yeah. magical. But it's it's in magical nature. because because it because, seems to be clearly messing with the minds and the perception of the people around her, so that they don't notice so much what's going something. on. Yeah, but that's just, all of those people, you know. But I love you know, and again, like it's it's not. It's it's kind of garbled, right? Because it is a metaphor in that she literally can't keep up with school. Right. That's, uh-huh. mm-hmm. you know, we see that in class with Willow. Okay, but that class is ridiculous. Oh, the class is so I, ridiculous. Is the most the- ridiculous. No undergrad class works with all these kids raising their hands and having actual salient points to make about having thought critically about this kind of, like, deep level of sociology. Like, yeah, no. The- the least believable part of this episode is that everyone in that class did the reading and can answer co- that coherently. Like, and is no arguing, one did the reading. I've been in right? that class. No one did the reading. I, and they're all me. competing to like answer the questions. Look, I teach classes that involve watching movies and talking about movies. My kids are fairly like you know involved in those conversations, but still, when it comes to the readings that I assign. No. So I get this exact kind of thing when we're talking about, you know, dodgeball. Sure. (laughs) But when we're talking about Robert McKee's story, no. Yep. No, they don't. You know, so um, so I find that to be like and maybe it's just because of my experiences teaching on the college level that I'm like, oh, please. But anyway, that aside, I mean, I like it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like it symbolically. I like right. the class mm-hmm. symbolically. It's ridiculous. I think and I would like Buffy's it even POV, more. That's how it feels. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think I would appreciate it more if this, like, the school is all sped up around her. Yeah, was a metaphor for feeling like she can't keep up in college because that. I mean, it's not a metaphor, but it is. It's literally these dudes right. messing with her, but then mm-hmm. she ends up in. You know, then she ends up on a construction site with these, you know, misogynist dudes in hard hats being misogynist dudes in hard hats when she's just come back from seeing Angel, who's not like the other guys. And of course, Mm -hmm. these are the other guys. And there's this whole, you know, if we wanted to, we could go down this whole road of like, you know, she's back from heaven and men are the worst. (laughs) And they're really the worst. I I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's it's fine. But yeah, but Tara doesn't spot anything. Mm-hmm. The guys are clearly watching something from the van. I just know. Uh-uh. uh-uh. Yeah, it just it feels it just feels super weird because the guys are watching from the van. So they even if there was some kind of mystical 
affect the that made the people around her that messed with the minds of the people around her which by the way given everything that is going to happen to tara and is probably actually currently happening to tara on the regular um i find it disturbing that tara's mind is being messed with you know after her experience with glory after the fact that i think that that willow has ordered lisa bramble from costco at this point and is probably <laughs> messing with Tara's memory on the regular to keep her from yeah. arguing, um, which I find disturbing on a great level. We'll talk about that when we get there, uh, which won't be too long. Um, but all of this is, you know, it, it just, it all kind of like melds together in this weird misogynistic soup and none of it really makes any sense. Like the guys are watching through technology. So even with everybody's minds being messed with, they're, how would they be able to see it? You know, like, because they're watching through technology. The technology is not going to warp the reality to express Buffy's POV in this. Um, but I don't know. But then again, like, all of that stuff, like, when you get into these arguments, like, how would that really happen in a show with demons and vampires? Like, at a certain point, I'm the asshole, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, if I yeah. went to AITA and said, look, I'm a person who critiques Buffy and talk about these things are not believable, you know, maybe yeah. I'm the asshole. But, yeah. Well, and, but... And yes, and and also, mm -hmm. but, <laughs> and also but I think I think it's a lot easier to let something like that just exist in a story when we are deep in someone's POV and we're yeah. not at privy to, you know, any sort of puppeteering that's going on. Yeah. But mm -hmm. when we also are seeing like we're seeing what Buffy is seeing and we're experiencing what she's experiencing, you know, particularly at the magic box. But then mm -hmm. we're also seeing behind the scenes and it just doesn't it's unsatisfying for me because it doesn't line up. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's not you know, it's not you're repeating this because we're doing some sort of spiritual allegory. You know, we're mm -hmm. like talking about the human soul and quest for meaning. It's literally three dudes who right. are having a contest about who can fuck with you the best i don't yeah that's where i get i don't know well yeah I think and if your metaphor isn't strong like if if you know we kind of have places where you can sort of pull out that metaphor like buffy not being able to keep up at college but for the most part it's not metaphor it's it's a situation like you know it's it's circumstance it's mm -hmm. you know situation comedy almost like you know we have her in this groundhog day loop which by the way i love and is my favorite like i love that whole run the groundhog day and the magic box oh, uh you know so <laughs> takes luck she's not gonna sleep with you anyway um um, like all of it, all of it. I love the whole run. I love. Um, but at the same time, like, yeah, the metaphor isn't strong. So we go to the like the sci fi of it. Right. Because it does have an element of sci fi. We're kind of bringing that in because they're using all of this, you know, advanced technology mixed with magic. Right. To right. Create this this whole torment thing. Right. Um, yep. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was. I, I love, you know, the three. I love opening everything with this is going to be great. This is going to be great. This is going to be great. <laughs> like Buffy's unending optimism of trying to make all of this stuff work, you know. Um, so, I mean, I like all of this stuff. I think it's really fun. But, yeah, when it comes right down to it, we come back to these three guys and they are where the cookie starts to crumble, right? Yeah. It's a weird, like, male writer, director, self-owned, too. Yeah. Right. 
I was thinking about this. I'm like, okay. I mean, obviously I hate this because I hate seeing men mess with women. Mm-hmm. I hate these dudes because, I mean, they're right. hateable. Yes. Um, we'll talk more about them and like why specifically. But I'm tra- yes. I'm, I'm watching this and I'm like, okay, but like, what is going on here that this is like, I'm so... Like I like I stood up in my house. I'm like, just no. Why, why do I hate this so much? Right. And I think there's something here about like, I don't know, male, like the male auteur director mm-hmm. kind of positioning of these guys. Yeah. I, this is going to be like way, way into the weeds and like way. I don't know. I don't know. That's it's my favorite cultural thing. studies. But I love when you get in the weeds. Go in the weeds. I don't know. So so I'm thinking about them. I'm thinking about them and what they're doing and how they're positioned in the narrative. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, throughout, they're making all of these references. They're making all these pop cultural references, which is a thing that they have done. It's a thing they will continue to do. Mm -hmm. But I think in this episode, everything they reference is movies and television. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Star Wars, Star Trek, The X-Files, Monty Python, James Bond. I mean... Mm-hmm. I can't come up with a non-TV or movie reference that the yeah, guys Yeah, I don't think made. these guys are reading, you know, The Odyssey. These are, these are not great readers. But previously in, we've yeah. seen, yeah, previously we've seen other, mm-hmm. you know, nerd culture, quote unquote, references yep. with right. video mm-hmm. games and action figures and things like that. So they have, yeah. they have other you know, nerd or geek culture touch points. But in this episode, it's all movies and television, as far as right. I can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, I mean, and the fact that the mess with Buffy dick measuring contest is almost derailed by an argument about who the best James Bond is. Yeah. Felt, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe meaningful to me. I mean, which Warren tries to, one up by mentioning specific shots in Moonraker. <laughs> like he From takes issue to a double take. Yup. Yup. He's taking issue not only with the ridiculousness yeah. of the mm-hmm. scenario, but also with the ridiculousness of the filmmaking. Right. Mm-hmm. And their entire operation is based on crafting these scenes for Buffy and then watching yeah. her play them out on literal television monitors from a control room. Yeah, it is it, very much a control room. It feels yeah. very much male writer director. Like they are mm-hmm. positioning themselves as the auteurs of the Buffy serial. I mean to Ooh, use the word from yeah. the title of the episode. Uh-huh. Um and I mean, and if I wanted to get real visual studies PhD about this, I love it. <laughs> I could talk about the decision to make the other thing that they watch on those TV monitors, quote unquote, free cable porn. Oh my God. So, on one hand, we have exploitation of Buffy's slayer powers for the advancement of men. Yes. And on the other hand, we have explicitly stolen images of, I'm presuming, women performing. Mm-hmm sexually for these cishet male gays. I mean, yeah. it's this close to being a really savvy critique of men's entitlement to women's bodies and experiences through mm-hmm. film and television. Like, it's this close. Oh, it's, yeah. It's so close to being about not just, not just like 
the the experience of being a voyeur, but the experience mm-hmm. of being a, a a writer, a director, someone who is crafting a narrative for a woman, but yeah. really for the advancement of men. This is for their own enjoyment, and it's also for their own it's for their own competition and it's for their own entertainment yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so no i love that yeah you know and i don't know like how how much of a deep dive that is worth doing but you know <laughs> no well i love it i mean it, it gets into thing. this realm yeah it's there <laughs> it is well first of all death of the author if you see it it's there second of all there is this accidental theme work that can happen within a culture in that in that the culture itself the free cable porn is a nerd joke so you bring that in to this scenario because it lends itself to that but it also shines a light like our culture reflects us back at ourselves and so sometimes we will end up i think i don't think this was deliberate theme work but i think it it still manages to shed that light and make those connections maybe without necessarily intending to just because the the tendrils of that are so deeply ingrained within our culture you know um so yeah i find that really really interesting but there's this whole like nerd culture thing right Mm-hmm. That um, that I find endlessly fascinating uh, because we have this thing where we just hate nerds, right? Like this is something that has been built into our culture from I don't know. I don't know where, you know, I have not studied the etymology of nerd. I don't know when this started, but I would probably put it culturally somewhere in the 1950s, right? I was going to post- say mid-century. Yeah. Post- I would if I had World War II. Post-World yeah. War II, World War II, the greatest generation where men were men, women were women. And then we needed women to go to work. We needed women to, uh, you know, to make the rivets, Rosie the Riveter, all of that kind of stuff. And then when the men came back, we were like, OK, honey, go back into the kitchen. And we started to feel like the beginning of the the women's liberation movement, which, of course, you know, dates back to suffrage, you know, in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, but, you know, this is all part of a long line of movement. But I think that this was this one thing. And so we have like this internal male schism right between the jocks and the nerds, you know, Mm -hmm. where we're separating men out into these divisions. And it is typically a male thing because nobody cares about the female experience and nobody talks about it. Um, But we've been (laughs) after nerds culturally for a really long time. And nerds have been, um, you know, kind of traditionally in our culture, like we we pick on and beat up the nerds and use them as sources of derision and comedy, um, you know, throughout our our cultural properties throughout this time. Right. And I would say that started in the 50s. Um, But then in the 80s, we had this big revenge of the nerdsessence, right, in which the nerds fought for the rights to live in peace and rape women just as capably as the jocks, uh, usually by tricking the beautiful women who scorn them into believing that they are the jocks just long enough so that they can rape them and then get rewarded with love and admiration from their victim because they were just so good at the raping, right? Um, And if you guys out there are not familiar with these references you can look up rape and 16 candles also rape and revenge of the nerds but be prepared it is fucking disturbing and infuriating um and this is definitely these are definitely very clear examples of rape culture whenever i talk to somebody who denies rape culture i bring out these examples and then i have yet to fail to make them recognize and acknowledge that yes rape culture fucking exists and that's exactly what it is um you know this idea that a nerd can pretend to be a jock have sex with 
with a woman um, without her consent and then end up being loved by that beautiful woman, despite the fact that he's a nerd who just raped her um, because he was just so good in the sack. So this is clearly self-insertion fantasy because who was writing the movies in the 80s? You know, probably self-identified nerds, right? Um, but anyway, what started in the 80s eventually moved into this manifestation in the trio in Buffy and would later go on to become the hive of scum and toxic masculinity that self-identify as quote-unquote incels. We're not going to go there. Um, but Warren, Andrew, and Jonathan are what happens when people with, and please hear the disapproving quote marks in my tone, quote unquote, default identities um, are both riddled with entitlement and then denied the societal power that they, by their own estimation, are, quote unquote, owed. All right. So this cognitive dissonance creates rage and they use the privilege that they have to basically throw a massive temper tantrum that ends in threats of rape and murder at best and actual rape and murder at worst. Um, so whatever disgust you feel at these three and anyone who feels disgust when dealing with these guys is entitled to that disgust. Uh, they are real, they're present, they're active forces in our society. And having them in this story, having that discussion happen in this story, I actually find very, very interesting. Um, Warren, Jonathan, Andrew are real, they're gross. Um, but seeing them get their collective asses kicked by Buffy, I'm not going to lie. A little satisfying. Kind of enjoy that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but that said, I would like to just take a quick moment to separate actual nerd culture from these assholes, right? Um, nerds basically are people who are passionate about something. I mean, it's not always comic books or superheroes. There are knitting nerds and marine biology nerds and space nerds. And the only reason why we have anything awesome in the world is because of nerds. Um, and some people, you know, are even story nerds, right? So that happens. On <laughs> some people, too. it's happened. Some people, I, I don't some know. Some people are also story nerds. Uh, basically caring deeply about anything is a form of vulnerability. And when I teach about writing a vulnerability uh, to my students, I talk to them about anybody who cares deeply about something is going to be vulnerable when it comes to that thing. It matters so much to them. Um, so love is one of the sources of vulnerability along with fear, identity, and shame. Loving a thing, loving a topic, loving an idea, that is also a form of love that can create vulnerability. Um, and the need to stomp out vulnerability is, I think, a primary source of toxic masculinity, which is why bullies who are too weak to wrestle with their own insecurities pick on people who love things and ideas with their whole hearts, you know, nerds, right? So mm -hmm. while Andrew, Jonathan, and Warren are nerds, I reject the premise that is their nerdiness that makes them toxic. It's their nerdiness that actually makes them lovable to the extent that they are lovable. Like Andrew painting the Death Star and tricking out the horn on the van is actually lovable, which brings us to our next discussion, Noelle. Yes. <laughs> Why do we love Jonathan and Andrew? <laughs> I mean, a lot of because reasons. Because you and I have had this discussion. We yeah. kind of do, right? What, like, Despite I, all evidence, you know? Yeah, I really do. And I mean, I was it just last episode where I was like, oh, shit, no, Jonathan is actually terrible. And I managed to forget because he because... is, he, there, there is something about him. And I think, I mean, vulnerability is absolutely a huge part of it. And I think, mm -hmm. I mean, vulnerability is why nerds get picked on. Right. Because yeah. they are, I mean, uh, stereotypically, they are physically vulnerable in that they are not jocks, i.e. they're not, you know, right. big and strong. But they also have this vulnerability and that they they 
are passionate about something, which mm-hmm. makes them less which masculine to society. And it's, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the reason, like, <laughs> you have this heading in our notes. It's why, you know, why do we hate nerds? And I was like, oh, we hate nerds because of misogyny. Because <laughs> right. nerds, like, we right. do. We do. Mm-hmm. Because, because under patriarchy, masculinity, specifically like white, cishet, able-bodied masculinity is Mm -hmm. the masculinity. So anything that is not that is less than, aka feminine. Like, Mm -hmm. what is it? What does it mean to be less masculine? It means to be feminine. I mean, in this like bi-chromatic non-rainbow of thought about how (laughs) gender works right so you know so like we hate we hate nerds because nerds are feminine in a way Mm -hmm. that that hegemonic masculinity you know would have us believe cannot handle because like it's just it has this inherently vulnerable sense to it right Yeah. yeah yeah so i mean there's that. So we love, mm-hmm. I mean, the the simple answer, at least for me, why do I love Jonathan and Andrew? I love them because they're vulnerable. But yeah. how they're vulnerable is, I think, interesting and problematic, right? Because we mm-hmm. have these three guys who are presented as a unit, like they are the trio. Yeah. But it's really Warren who is in charge in that it's his idea to take over Sunnydale. And then he right. is presented as the most, um, what, culturally sanctioned in, ter- in terms of yeah. his masculinity. Like, mm-hmm. he is the most, God, I'm using, like, the biggest quotes here. But, like, he's We've the most. We've got air quotes all over this discussion. Oh, my God. Yes. It's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Yeah. And, yeah. of course, you know, I always, like, I always want to put the little disclaimer on everything that, like, I'm speaking in binary terms and, like. You know, and it sounds very things in binary, despite the fact that that's not the reality of experience. Yeah. And shit starts to sound really bioessentialist. And I never mean it to be that either. It's like, I mean, this is the the thing about any sort of cultural critique. You're like, well, the culture says this. Um, Yeah. So that's what you know, that's what we're talking about. But in terms of in terms of tropes of masculinity and like what is the most masculine of the three of them warren is the most masculine and then there are these two other guys who are still part of this group um who are still participating in all of the villainous behavior but because they're more vulnerable they they take on this kind of underdog status. And I almost my as a viewer, I almost root for them sort of against Warren. I mean, and part of that is I just hate him so much and I cannot wait for mm-hmm. his skin to be forcibly removed from his body by magic. I'm so excited. <laughs> I, Hello, it's, Flay it's Day. We are it's waiting ca- for Flay Day. Oh, my God. Well, it's so cathartic. <laughs> this is why I mean, this is why we come to fiction. All it right? is. It is. But I mean, so yeah. So part of the reason that I love them is that compared to Warren, they're like, air quotes, not that bad, which is so fucked up because, of course, that's how, yeah, like that's how toxicity works. 
Well, that's how yeah, you- because they're <sighs> the, I mean, he, Warren may be the spark, right? But they're the oxygen that feeds it, right? They make it possible for him to do all of this because they throw their their skills and their abilities behind his mission. So even though they're not as bad as Warren, um, they are because they're not stopping him from doing things that are absolutely, you know, morally wrong, that are just wrong, you know, and bad things uh, because they have that essential weakness of character. And I think it's what happens when, when vulnerability and entitlement clash, right? Sure. We have that moment of cognitive dissonance that kind of that creates this internal rage that is, I want this thing and I don't have this thing. So I should have this thing because I'm entitled to this thing. So how do I throw a fucking fit and use all of my power in that process? There is so much power that comes with being you know, a cishet white male, right? You know, there's so much power involved in that. And they use that you know, to get what they want, whatever they want, without thinking about any of this on a on a deeper level, which, you know, granted, societally, we haven't really encouraged anybody to think about that on a deeper level. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I don't know, but I love them. I love Jonathan and Andrew. I've always loved Jonathan and Andrew. The first time that I realized that Jonathan raped the two girls in Superstar, I was shocked and horrified because A, oh my God, that's Jonathan. And B, how did I never notice notice that before? How did that get beyond my, you know, my notice? Then we forget about it immediately because he's not really held responsible for it, right? Well, and also because we don't, even as we're critiquing these things, like we are still, the pump is still primed to not take these guys seriously. Like that is the, and that's kind of the oddly revolutionary at the time thing that Buffy does with the trio is we're used to the nerds, the nerd characters who are predatory. We're used to rooting for them. We're used to them Mm -hmm. being the heroes. You know, we're like, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, way to go. Like we we super want um, Crispin Glover to end up with with uh, Leah Thompson and go to the enchantment under the sea dance. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're used to rooting for the nerds. So Buffy subverts that by taking the same type of nerd that we've seen be the heroes of film and television and make them the villains, but they're still doing all of the same actions They're still adorable in a lot of the ways that, yeah, which is actually why, I mean, this is one of the things that I really love about this, you know, big bad for the season. You know, I like these guys. I like what we're doing with them. I like what we're saying about them. I like that we're actually taking a look at all of this bullshit in the culture and calling it out as this is not okay. Um, You know, there's a lot of stuff happening here that I think is really, really interesting and absolutely revolutionary for the time period that it was in, you know. Um, So I, I, I actually, I, I, okay, I hate it. Because it makes me very, very angry because it is so true to like actual life experience, you know, with a lot of these kinds of guys. We're not working in metaphor. This is literal. 
This is literal and this is real. And that makes it so much more like infuriating, especially because it hits all those trigger points about all the times, you know, in my personal experience, when I've been up against these guys who have talked this way and who behaved this way and how that's not okay. But yet I was taught growing up, you know, as a girl in the eighties that, um, that that was okay. Not only okay, but that's the adorable, isn't it so cute, right? You know, these are the nice Um, guys. These These are the the nice nice guys. guys. These are the guys that we want to root for when in actuality, what they're doing is, you know, just as reprehensible as the classic, you know, jock, toxically masculine kind of thing that we tend to see. Um, So I actually, you know, enjoy it. Um, It is... I kind of like the fact that I'm challenged by the idea that I still love Jonathan and Andrew. And as we move into season seven, loving Andrew is a thing that is going to be, again, a challenge for me because I do. I love Andrew. I love Tom Lenk. I love that performance. I love the way he's written and Storyteller is one of my absolute favorite episodes of Buffy. You know, it's in my top 10. Yeah. Um, Which, of course, is another Jane Espenson penned uh, uh, um, episode, but yeah, so it's very complicated. And I think that, uh, complication is absolutely appropriate to this because people are complicated and people yeah. are usually people are not hundred percent good or hundred percent evil. There is a mixture, um, and having love and affection for Jonathan and Andrew, who you can see as victims of a society. They're just not smart enough to outthink, you know, Uh, That they are raised to be this, you know? And there's something kind of darling in the way that they are so devoted to the task of, of fighting for a kind of dominant culture masculinity, which we know they will never achieve. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's super problematic and I'm, you know, I'm like fully canceling myself right now for like even saying it, but like watching them, watching them try so hard to be something that they will never really be. And that ultimately we don't want for them anyway, because like, no, thank you. Like, I don't, (laughs) we don't need more. we, We don't. We don't need more of that, but because they're not good men, they're not good yeah. people. But they're also like I don't think that they are uh, self aware enough to understand that their choices are actively evil. I think that if they had some kind of awareness of the extent to which they are evil, which we see Jonathan picking up. Jonathan is the first one to sort of start realizing that they're they're not the good guys, that they are absolutely the evil bad guys. They were playing at being the bad guys. You know, they're like, oh, we're going to you know form this syndicate and take over Sunnydale. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was play to Jonathan. Jonathan saw this as play and fun, I think, until we get to the point in Dead Things where Katrina gets killed. And then he starts to really see what's going on. By the time we get to seeing Red and the events um, after that, um, we see Jonathan really feeling the extent of what he has done and understanding it in a way that um, that Andrew and Warren failed to, um, which is interesting because Jonathan actually is the first of them to recognize what they've done and to try to make amends and to try to have, you know, gain some some manner of redemption. And of course, he gets killed for it right. uh, because Andrew's easier to manipulate. 
Um, yeah. So that's that's something that's that we're going to see in season seven as we move into you know a different phase of this story where we get to the redemption phase for these guys who maybe aren't evil, but very much allow create create an environment in which evil can thrive you know, um, and contribute to that environment actively. Um, so I don't know, like, I find them really interesting. I still, I still have love for Andrew and Jonathan, none for Warren. Warren has disgusted me from the moment he showed up and I was made to love you. Um, and, um, has always bugged me, you know, ever, ever since. I think that Adam Bush does a good job playing Warren, um, I think the, the actor does a good job with the character. Um, but yeah, the character makes my skin crawl every time we come in contact with him. Whereas Jonathan and Andrew, I laugh at the jokes with them. I kind of love them. Andrew painting the Death Star and then Jonathan making an argument about the design of the Death Star and then, you know, uh, programming the horn with the Star Wars theme. All of this stuff I find adorable and lovable while at the same time, you know, really wanting to hold Jonathan and Andrew accountable for what they are actively doing, which is a terrible, terrible thing. It's, it's it's complicated. So, it's so complicated and it's so oh god it's and it's so sad. I mean Jonathan I think more so than the other two mm-hmm. is motivated by this kind of loneliness that we've seen right. you know we've seen previously. Like what mm-hmm. he does is despicable, but like what is underneath it all I mean for me I get the sense is very much like he's he is a lonely person who doesn't really know how to engage with other people and have the kind of contact that he wishes he could have Mm -hmm. and it's like go to therapy (laughs) you guys like i just want to help yeah oh my god like how many how many plot lines Mm -hmm. are just like these men should go to therapy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that they should. Yeah. But this is fiction. This is where we work out all of right. our bullshit, right? All of our cultural like, bullshit. Fiction is to a certain extent, a level of cultural therapy um, where we get to take a look at ourselves and it ain't but pretty. Like, <laughs> but guys, you can do both. Okay. Yeah, like you can, yeah, you yeah. can like listen to conversational podcasts and watch TV <laughs> and movies and go to therapy. Like you can do you all totally of these know. things. Therapy. Therapy. Everybody <laughs> needs therapy. Everybody needs therapy. Um, I fully, fully endorse that. And unfortunately, our mental health system, such as it is, does not support that. But everybody needs a good therapist. Um, so one of the things that I find, of course, a little ironic about this whole discussion is that here we are almost at an hour. We've spent most of it discussing the men. We haven't really talked about Buffy, um, our female hero, that much. <laughs> our podcast fails the Bechdel test. Congratulations <laughs> you know to us. Congratulations. Oh. Congratulations to us, right? Um, So here we have Buffy, right? You know, struggling, trying to figure out exactly what it is that she's supposed to do. She comes home with fried chicken, right? And immediately Giles is like, what are you going to do? And she's like, well, I'm going to pay this bill and I'm going to do this. And he's like, no, with your life. And I'm like, okay, look, she just got her life back. For all intents and purposes, she's three months old. Like, give her a minute, you know? Also, like the bills, like right now, I hate that moment so much. I hate it so much because the question 
that he's asking, like, logically, yes, like, we need to address the stuff with the house and the bills. And of course, that's going to be the first thing she's thinking of. And then he's like, no, I meant like a big picture, like your whole life. Also, let's figure out your whole life as if you're not under she enough has, stress right now. Like, is the basement still underwater? We don't know. Like, <laughs> we don't know. I, mean, I assume that there was a full coppery pipe in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh my I don't know. God. I don't know. The whole thing is so crazy. And what I do not understand, like this whole thing with Giles, we get to this thing at the end, right? Where she says, you know, he gives her a check. And we're supposed to see this as a generous gift when she got him two years of retroactive pay, yeah. not to mention the fact that he clearly has money set aside because he was able to be unemployed for such a long goddamn time and then bought a business in town, which is also generating income for him so that he can just fuck off to England and hang out and do whatever the hell he was doing over there. Right. Well, that's supporting him. Why? Like, he can't give her money. Why he can't move in and start paying the fucking mortgage? Why can't he live there and just be dad? He's been dad anyway. Why can't this just be, you know, Slayer HQ and everybody live there and everybody contribute and everybody, like, the money that that Willow and Tara would be spending on dorms and room and board at the university, they can put toward this house. Like, there are ways to resolve these money issues without everything landing on budget. Buffy, who is fresh out of the fucking grave, right? You know, um, so all of this I find super, super irritating. Um, the way that when he gives her this money, it is treated as though it is this generous gift rather than like, you know, fiduciary justice that we should be taking <laughs> Your care of Buffy. Phrase. Everybody should be. I love it. Everybody should be contributing to Buffy's well-being right now. Buffy's upkeep, the upkeep of the house, the, the space for Dawn. This is a family. They should be pulling together. And the idea that it all falls on Buffy's shoulders and that a job, which we're going to see her get, a job at the fucking Double Meat Palace is going to stem the tide of this I love double like, meat financial palace. crash, right? Yeah. Um, a yeah. minimum wage job at fast food place is not going to uphold that lifestyle like you know so it's, all of it i i find to be just too much well it's the problem we were having talking about like i don't want a pie i don't want a literal pile of bills on my fantasy vampire show exactly <laughs> this isn't this is an extension of that but it's also like we and we do this a lot Mm -hmm. on Buffy I think where it's like we kind of want to have it both ways we want to have like here's the practical day-to-day but we're not going to fully explore that because like the logistics of you know mm -hmm. whatever it is seven people like figuring out okay here's how we're going to live in this house and here's how we're going to handle these bills and here's how we're mm -hmm. going to like that shit is so boring it's yeah. so boring trying to we figure out the day-to-day -day. lives. We don't want to do that. I don't want to you... go to my show and have that. Yeah. <laughs> like that's not that's not why we come to our, you know, mm -hmm. demon fighting vampire sticking show. That's that's not why we're here. <laughs> but because we've gone down this path of mm -hmm. Buffy as you know, capital A adult and what that yeah. means, that's going to come up. So it is we're kind of in this in between space with the the narrative and with the focus of mm -hmm. the storytelling and what. But yeah, come on, like a, a yeah. 
Giles ex machina. No, I don't. I don't. Yeah. No, I don't no, care I mean, for it. Giles I saying, hey, this is money you've earned. This is money you're owed. And every week you're going to receive a check from me because you fucking earned it because you are out there saving the world every night. I mean, for God's sake, I know this is pre GoFundMe, but between the bunch of them, they could figure something out, you know? Um, so I, and I do understand that we are trying to get Buffy to um, wrestle with the realities of adulthood and that this, uh, uh, this show up until now has been about that transition to adulthood, you know, and finally accepting adulthood. Now here we are and you have to deal with the realities of adulthood which adulting sucks it's no fun you know um and i (laughs) get it and i think it's fine i think it's the specific ways in which they present the adulthood that bother me um the specifics of this is a gift rather than money earned and money owed you know um all of that is uh is really super irritating to me um but then we have this whole thing with buffy trying to you know figure it out she goes to college and she can't keep up with the the class the ridiculously unrealistic um class that uh, that willow's in um she's you know she's being tormented by these guys uh, she goes to the construction site and there's a bunch of demons that show up and she has to deal with that um that she is capably handling all of these challenges that are being thrown at her and nobody can see them everything disappears from external perspectives it just looks like buffy's crazy so it's additional level of gaslighting on buffy that drives me crazy and gaslighting is let me just tell you the predominant you know predominant patriarchal uh you know a tool of choice right gaslighting is its favorite favorite thing to do um favorite pastime so all of that combined um you know i i i like watching it it's it's fun but at the same time for anybody who watches that and is like all right enough like this is you know really super irritating like i get it um but we have this moment though where she finally goes to spike right when she stops trying to figure out who she is she goes to spike and sits down with him and starts doing (laughs) shots and i love this whole run from the first you know (laughs) through to the end of you were supposed to fix my life that run i fucking love there's this moment in there when spike says you're not a schoolgirl, you're not a shop girl you're a creature of the darkness like me right and so here we have the one place where she feels like she can you know she says the only person i can talk to is a neutered vampire who cheats at kitten poker right so Mm -hmm. we end up getting that um but spike here is grooming buffy like you know bending this narrative to try to convince her that she belongs with him right and that that is her identity um altering the narrative of her experience to match what it is that he wants and buffy doesn't for a moment she's like fuck you please right she does not buy into it which i really really like um but it's pretty gross to watch and i mean i like spike but this moment where he's like abusively bending that narrative to convince her of where she belongs and what her identity is and that it's with him um it feels also yeah it's gross and it also comes on the heels of everyone else sort of bringing Buffy into their own thing. So yeah. it's Tara and Willow at school. It's Xander doing construction. It's Anya at the store. It's mm-hmm. like, I think that that didn't raise as big and bright of a red flag for me because this re- this is Spike's turn to do the, 
here, yeah. come do my thing with me. But of course, it's right. different because Spike has feelings for Buffy. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, you're absolutely right. It's it's creepy. And he's definitely, you know, he's doing a very he's, creepy yeah, dude he's thing. The of like, narrative. Yeah. Telling mm-hmm. her who she is and where she belongs. But it's also yeah. within the context of this episode of everyone trying she's, to get Buffy on board. spending a little time in everybody's, yeah, in everybody's yeah. world. I think that because of that kind of, because it is so, like, it is that grooming, you know, that these these personalities do to their victims that I find a heartily, you know, horrible because, you know, that should happen to me. Um, so maybe, like, I'm bringing myself into it a little bit too much. Um, but, yeah, that's that just bugged me you know but I love absolutely everything else about her time with Spike Um, but one of the things that I love the most though is that we have actually the opposite of an identity struggle here with Buffy like Buffy knows exactly who and what she is and the only reason why she's trying on all of these things is so that she can actually pay for that full fucking copper repipe right you know this is all about just making money it's not about she has a question about who she is she knows who she is what she's actually struggling with and dealing with is her response to trauma and actually ends the season. We end the season, frustratingly enough, by presenting her with an additional huge trauma that we're essentially going to just erase. But, you know, whatever. We'll talk about that when we get there. Um, but the trauma itself is not induced by her death. That was fine. It's by yeah. being pulled back out of that and into this world that is all evil and chaos, you know? Um, so I actually kind of love that. And I love the way that we are presenting her trauma because that is a traumatic experience. The experience of trauma puts you out of sync with the world. It numbs your emotions. You can't feel, um, you know, and and you don't feel like yourself and you're not connected to yourself and you don't really know you know, who you are. I like, though, that she knows who she is, that she's not letting, nobody's convincing her that this is where she belongs. She's going into all of these things that this is going to be great. Like she's being positive (laughs) about it. The only one that she goes to where she's not trying to make a buck and figure out how she's going to pay for the full copper repipe, though, is with Spike. When she goes to hang out with Spike, it's because he is the only one that she feels okay around, which I find really interesting and i think it's i think it's literally because she does not care how he feels or what he thinks i think it's the only time she can be around she can be alone yeah she can be vulnerable with him and Mm -hmm. then she can be vulnerable with him because she had you know she doesn't care what he Mm -hmm. thinks she's not trying to impress him and then she goes and makes herself even more vulnerable by drinking with him which i find getting drunk yeah fascinating Mm-hmm. I I love that. I love that gesture of a mm-hmm. kind of resignation to. All right, this is my person that I'm vulnerable with. Here we yeah, go. I guess <laughs> I guess this is what we do now. Is kind of the way that this is presented. Like, okay, I guess this is where I am now. So let's just yep. ride with it, right? Yeah. Which is her it's whole like her whole drinking persona is that. Oh my God. By the way, She's... I think you're drunk. I think you're drunk. <laughs> Oh, 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 my God. The performance, the <gasps> drunk performance oh my by Sarah God, Michelle Gellar. I love Holy it. Holy shit. I'm not getting in a bar fight. <laughs> sure, oh I'll beat him up God. for information, but I'm not doing this to defend your right to play kitten poker. 
Oh my God. I mean, and I hate the kitten poker thing. I hate the kittens as currency thing because oh God, it's a I little too it. jokey for me. Um, I love it. Oh my God. I, kitten yeah. poker. Kitten poker makes this episode for me. Oh my it's God. It's so fucking funny. It's so, <laughs> it's, you know what? Because it's just so bananas. But like, of it, course, yeah. these demons would play for kittens. Of course they would. Are you kidding no. me? I don't no. know. Not live kittens. Okay, if they're going to eat kittens, I think they would already have them as kitten meat. I mean, we eat, you know, like steaks, but nobody brings a cow as currency, you know? Oh, but but lobsters are alive in the tank, and then you get to choose your live lobster to have steam. We're, oh, yeah. That's pretty terrible, but that's also, yeah, I guess maybe if kittens also are best eaten fresh then i guess okay fine but whatever yeah no picking the lobster is something i've never been able to do but they're adorable because i'm a hypocrite and they're not furry yeah but it's delightful um visual juxtaposition for me i i just like it it's very it's it's a little too silly for me it crosses the line of of silliness for me um in a show that is greatly silly so again this is just like me criticizing the realistic you know elements of a show with demons and vampires so anyway um but one of the other things though that um when i was thinking about this that kind of caught my attention was this buffy effect right um what I find interesting is that the last two remaining big bads of the series right the trio this season and the first next season only become threats because buffy came back <laughs> Everything would have yeah. been fun. Had Warren not been threatened by Buffy's power and strength, the trio would have just robbed a bank or two and spent all their money in a fruitless pursuit of the chicks, chicks, chicks part of the plan. Tara would have lived. Willow wouldn't have threatened to destroy the world, right? We wouldn't have had that. And it's textual in season seven that all the firsty shenanigans happened because Buffy was brought back to life after dying, which also happened in season one. But according to the text, it was the post-season five mystical return that did this. And I guess there's an equivalent of the five-second rule for bringing a slayer back from the dead. I don't know. Or it's because Willow shifted the mystical balance by bringing Buffy back months (laughs) after the fact, whereas Xander saved her more immediately in a mundane method right um but at any rate like <laughs> all knows? of the uh, you know various apocalypse apocalypse size Apo- whatever the plural apocal- is yeah apocalypse um <laughs> apocalypses all of them happen because buffy was brought back because willow did this thing which i find really really interesting yeah and also Ooh, also an interesting commentary on, like, we cannot, like, the world cannot tolerate an extraordinary woman. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the whole, I mean, that's that's the whole setup for this episode with the, yeah. the trio fucking with her because she's so powerful. Mm-hmm. They feel, like, justified somehow mm-hmm. in messing with her and, like, trying to destabilize her and find her weakness yep but yeah yeah we just can't tolerate that much kick-ass feminine energy it's just like it you know don't don't be too extraordinary ladies bad shit will happen like well yeah willow does this amazing thing and then everything that comes from it is shit right i mean granted rank arrogant amateur probably shouldn't have done it fair enough right you know but i mean willow is incredible in what she's 
I was amazing, right? You know, yep. in what she was able to do. Um, and then don't, don't, don't be amazing, women, because yeah. if you do, it's going to fuck everything up. So, um, yeah, I think there's a message there, maybe. I think yeah. there's something to be pulled from that. <laughs> like nature abhors a vacuum, culture abhors an extraordinary woman, right? Is it something like that? Something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, God, well, and how many, Jesus, how many stories are just, there is an extraordinary woman and forces are out there to destroy her. Because and let's punish her for that. We can't have God that. Forbid. Yep. A woman with power? Fuck that shit. All right. Anyway. Have that. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, God. All right. So, Noelle, what's your favorite part? (laughs) Okay. All right. My favorite part. My favorite part is Alison Dinian as the mummy hand. We didn't talk about we didn't talk about the mummy hand. We did not. Time loop at all. And we're going to now because. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's great. I, love I it. mean, it's my favorite part. I mean, I, yeah. Well, okay. I mean, I it's do, my second I favorite do part. Feel, I do feel like I need to say the, the problematic thing that is. Wait a second. So, ancient mummy hand that we just have in our magic shop basement because mm-hmm. reasons, because, you know, that's not. That doesn't belong yeah. in a tomb somewhere to an actual person. I mean, we know from Inca Mummy Girl that to mummies... an actual person to an actual culture. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we know that mummies like like not only are they you know obviously actual people from mm-hmm. actual cultures with actual you know significance and to their lives, and, yes, but they have mm-hmm. feelings like this. Right. But but that is exactly what I love about the mummy hand. I love. Mm-hmm. I okay. First of all, I love puppeteering. I love it. It is incredible. <laughs> it is an incredible art form. Uh-huh. Somebody who can be somebody who can express a full range of emotion with mm-hmm. their hand. Are you kidding me? It's so uh, fucking uh, impressive. Uh, but that yeah. mummy hand has personality. Mm-hmm. It has I mean, it has vulnerability. It has, like, I love it. I love it when Buffy is when going got, after I love when it's snapping with the tongs. Yes. I love when she goes after it with the tongs. And then later we see it with the tongs. It has somehow mm-hmm. gotten the Managed tongs to from get her. the tongs away from the slayer. Yes. It is a hand that has outsmarted the slayer. And I love, <laughs> I love that, that Jonathan, you know, he says he gives her a task to solve that resists solving yes the resistance is the hand itself it's so fucking funny Mm -hmm. and so brilliant and the performance of the hand is just delightful it's expressive it Mm -hmm. it has a little mummy hand personality and i love it (laughs) and i love i love it i love that this is also an actual person playing this hand like now oh this God. would be CGI, like 100 percent yeah. CGI. Mm-hmm. This is a practical effect that is <laughs> I love it. so good and so funny mm-hmm. and a performer in its in, in her own right. And I'm just I'm here for it. I love it. I love, fucking love the mummy hand. I love the performance. I Allison love Dinian it. Did a thing. And it's amazing. <laughs> That is the best. I think that may be one of my favorite, favorite parts that we've ever had. <laughs> Ooh, meta. A favorite, favorite part. <laughs> A Love favorite, it. favorite part. <laughs> All right, Lonnie, what's your favorite part? 
Okay, well, I, it's Spike and Buffy, the whole thing, the whole thing from this is going to be great and blah to, you know, <laughs> you were supposed to fix my life. loud. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Your motorcycle's <laughs> It's all so great, and I love it, and I love the way it builds the relationship, even with Spike, like, grossly grooming Buffy. But you know what? He is a demon. Like, he is evil, and, like, we know that. So, all right, fine. But Buffy completely resists it. She is not vulnerable to his manipulations, which I really fucking love. Um, and all of it, that whole run is absolutely adorable. I think especially the way that he looks at her when she's drinking and she's so fucking adorable <laughs> and he just has this look on his face like he is completely enchanted by her and I love it she's ridiculous and he loves it and like what more could you ask for oh and I she know. calls him on his cheating yes. which I enjoy and then and he, he goes oh you saw, saw that, that did you <laughs> exactly <laughs> which I love is that she can see that he's cheating and he gets caught by her you know it's very nice I like it. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish, and use the hashtag StillPretty. This episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Still Pretty is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our October producers, Shelly, Kristen, Jonathan, Jonathan, Rose, Erica, Alice, Abigail, and Sarah. And this week's special message for our power producers, maybe it was Evil Lint. To find out how you too can support Chipperish media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or call on the misty portal to your demon dimension where you will lay your head and gently die. (laughs) I love that line so much. We will be back next time with All the Way, the sixth episode of season six. Until then, this is going to be great. (laughs) 